I want to take us to one more text this morning. We'll be in John 20, and I ask that you'd follow along in John 20, uh, but I want to start in Acts 26, just one verse. The Apostle Paul has been uh, making his way up to defend his case and his cause as he's potentially going to Rome to defend his ministry uh, before Caesar, and he's finally made it before King Agrippa, a regional ruler of, of that area. And in the process, if, by the way, just read this stuff this afternoon in, in Acts 25 and 26, genius stuff from Paul. It's just so fun to read uh, how he presents the gospel to these people. But in, in verse, chapter 26, verse 8, Stand before King Agrippa, Paul says, Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? The word incredible there could be, uh, some of you, your translations will have incredible, some will have inconceivable. You could easily just put in the word doubt in that word. Why do you doubt? Because that's what the word is. We're going to see the same word in Jesus' words to Thomas. It's just the word for believe, with an A in front of it, not believe. Why do any of you not believe that God raises the dead? This is actually the contention we made last week as well. Paul asks the question, um, and Paul asks the question to people who conceivably believe uh, in the divine, maybe not God, but gods, as the Romans did, uh, and they pulled a lot of them in from the Greeks anyways. Um, but Paul is asking a question, look, if you can believe that, what's so hard about believing that God would raise someone from the dead? And we asked the question in a different way last week. If we believe that God created the universe, and by and large, most people still believe that to some, in some way, shape, or form, then bringing Jesus back from the dead is no stretch of the imagination. It's not a, it's not a complicated thing to think about, that if God could make it from nothing in the first place, that he could take the something of a dead Jesus and reanimate him and bring him back to life and resurrect him. And as we grappled with the question last week, we're just going really into part two of the story this week. We asked the question of what happens when we encounter evidence of God's work. We pushed it further to ask the question of what does it mean then to believe because we can often have evidence of something but yet not fully put our faith in that thing, and we saw Mary, Peter, and John are good examples of that, where Mary hangs around at the tomb and finally sees the risen Jesus, and she's able to put her belief into what's happened. But Peter, and we're calling him John, the disciple Jesus loved, they go back, and they're still mulling this over until Jesus finally comes to them and says, look, here I am. You saw the, the, all the evidence that was there, but now you're seeing the final piece of evidence that you were waiting for here. They had a hard time believing. And part of the reason is they were living in disillusion and doubt at this moment. And so that's our theme this morning that we're going to talk about with Thomas, is the issue of doubt. And I want to just ask a, a question as we start to just kind of get you thinking about this. Can a moment of doubt lead to a breakthrough of belief? Can you have a moment of doubt or even a deep window of doubt in your life that could lead you to greater belief? In the end. And what we're dealing with in, in this story here with Thomas and with Jesus, we're dealing with expectations that don't match up with reality. 
Anybody ever find yourself in those situations where I expected one thing, whoa, I expected one thing, and something else happened? My wife is laughing, I think, at my uh, voice crack and something else. I'm not sure. I'll find out later. But that was a good one. All right. I had expectations there, too. Uh, reality did not match up. One of, the, one of the stories that has resonated with me over the years of expectation versus reality is the story that C.S. Lewis tells in his autobiography, Surprised by Hope. Joy. Sorry, Surprised by Joy. Um, he talks about, in his younger years, going to study under a tutor named the Great Knock. That was the nickname of the guy. He was legendary um, and rather intense, if you read the stories of studying under the Great Knock. But Lewis would have been in England, then he travels up to Scotland, a part of, of the world he had not been to before, gets off the train, and meets the Great Knock, who then begins to walk with him through town to take him to the house where he'll be living, uh, and being tutored by the Great Knock. As they're walking, his tutor is explaining, well, this street is, is this, and this is this area of town, and we're going towards the house. And C.S. Lewis, he's, you know, high schoolish age, he says, you know, I was trying to make conversation with the Great Knock, so I decided to, to lead with this. You know, I've never, I never expected the country to be so rugged and hilly, to which the Great Knock said, well, why would you expect that? Had you seen a picture of the area? Well, no. Have you ever traveled to the area before? No. Have you read descriptions of the area? No. Have you met anybody from the area? No. Have you met anybody who's traveled to the area? And he just keeps going down the list, and they're all, no, 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 no. I knew nothing about the area. And so finally, the great knock, who's teaching him in this moment, he looks at him and he says, after going through all this, and C.S. Lewis is feeling like, oh, this is really intense. He says, you see, you had no right to have any opinion whatever on the subject. That's good teaching. A lot of times without realizing it, we have expectations that are built on thin air. We really do. We have expectations that we think we're, we're wholly grounded, but they're not. We expected one thing, reality gave us a check. That happens quite often in our lives. The disciples weren't quite there. They had expectations that were grounded in, in a pretty hefty level of reality, I would suggest. They're ju just not fully where they needed to be in the story God had in mind. They had this belief that the Messiah was going to come. They had been steeped in a culture that was studying the prophetic texts for generation upon generation, waiting for the day. And they felt like they knew what to do with a lot of that story. Maybe they had a little trouble figuring out exactly what to do with Isaiah 53 or Psalm 110 or Psalm 95 or Jeremiah 31 or these. So they're not quite sure how to fit the pieces together, but they've got a pretty good idea. That's why they can ask some pretty intelligent questions when Jesus comes on, but nobody expected this guy to come and look the part and then die on Friday, right? That just was not an expectation. So they have this future king that now looks like a failed Messiah in their midst. And for someone like Thomas and the rest of the disciples, they're disappointed and grief-stricken and they're disillusioned and now they're doubting everything. Their expectation did not meet up with reality and they're not sure what to make of it. About uh, almost two decades ago now, I was working at a small Bible college in northern Colorado, Covenant Bible College. Um, we, uh, every year, would do a, a, the students would do a choir concert for the community, 
and uh, people love to come out from the neighborhood to see that. One year, we had a, I was talking to one of the neighbors after the concert, and she said, oh, it was just so nice to see all the kids up there singing from all over the country and even all over the world. And none of them had introduced themselves. She just had deduced this somehow uh, from I don't know what. But she's like, and, and there was even a Canadian up there. I saw her up there. And I said, well, again, they didn't introduce themselves, but I don't know how she came to this conclusion. I said, well, what made you think she was Canadian? Oh, she was just right there and she was shorter. <laughs> and I, I was just, not all Canadians are short in my experience. Uh, having lived there twice, I can tell you they're not all short. We did have a Canadian, but he was Filipino-Canadian and he was a guy, not a girl. So, you know, she was not totally off, but the expectations and reality didn't meet up. But we can have these deeper moments where expectations and reality don't meet up. You know, I remember uh, as a, in my younger years having a friend who's, whose dad gave up on God completely because he lost his brother. And then you're confronted with the issue of how can evil exist? How can that kind of thing happen if God is good? Our expectations don't match up with reality. And it causes grief in those cases. It causes heartache. And it's hard. And that's the world that Thomas is in. Let's put ourselves right there in his shoes. He's feeling it. And Thomas is also in the danger zone, though. He's really in the danger zone. So if we go to the text to John 20, starting at verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, also called Didymus, they both mean twin, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. And what does he say? Yeah, right. He says, no, no. he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And when Jesus comes to him, Jesus says something very important that, that we can understand about, that helps us understand doubt, I think. Jesus then in verse 27, he finally comes to him, it's the last uh, four words comes to Thomas and he says, stop doubting and believe. The Greek word is pistos for belief. Stop a pistos a la pistos. That's what it says. Stop doubting but believe. Stop doing the opposite of the belief thing. Now I'm standing before you. Turn it around. I want to point out about doubt though. We have to establish some, some important things about it first. Doubt is something we're all going to do in life, and it's not sinful to doubt. And in fact, even if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you follow Jesus Christ, doubt is something that accompanies even a robust faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because we don't know all the answers. We're not God. Let's admit it this morning. We're not God. We don't know everything. And so we're going to have moments where we're going to say, I'm not quite sure, or what if. And that's natural. A lot of those days. A lot of those weeks. Or longer in some cases. If you notice, God knows this information. That doubt's natural. Because whenever angels come on the scene in Scripture, what is the first thing they typically say? Don't be afraid. Right? Almost every single time. When Jesus is walking on the water, the disciples look at him. Don't be afraid. We can see this in Joshua when he's going to cross the Jordan River. God's command to not be afraid goes a little further and he says, be strong and courageous. I'm with you. I'm behind you. Go. Go across the river. I've called you to this task. When, he, when he's dealing with Gideon 
and Moses. A lot of more patience required. Gideon, let me just throw this fleece out once more, but wait, God, one more time. But maybe just God, the other two times weren't. Or Moses, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? A lot of doubts. And God says, I'm with you. I'm with you. See, doubt can be a natural thing. Even if God's called us, we're going to have these moments where we say, but what if? What if? Doubt, though, can overwhelm us. And that's where Thomas is. He's in disillusionment and grief, wondering if what he believed was really what he was supposed to believe. And that's an area where we can hang out there, but we have to recognize that we have two paths and only one of them is good at that point. We have two paths at that point and doubt can overtake us if we're not careful, if we lean the wrong direction. And the way that can happen, uh, three things I'd point out. Doubt can overtake us through the wrong influences and through the wrong information. So show me your friends and I'll show you your future kind of thing. right? The people you're hanging around with. Those people that influence you one way or the other. And the information you look up. So if we go back to the example we used before of, of being confronted with the question of if evil exists, how can God exist and a good God exist? Which is a, a question that gets asked pretty commonly. If, if you tease the question out, they don't really match up those two ends of the, the question. They're, they're, one does not really lead to the other, in my opinion. The ancients, back in the world of Thomas, they would have said, you know what, if, if evil exists, that means God's not all-powerful. They wouldn't have said that doesn't mean God doesn't exist. In fact, I think if you tease out the argument, you'll discover that, that if you have to define what good and evil are, you're going to need somebody who's a definition outside of ourselves in order to define what good is, thus what evil is. But that's why I don't think it, it fits. But if you go online, if you're, if you're in a grief-stricken moment and you go online and you start Googling if God exists, you know, how can evil exist, and you just pick out some of the top atheist websites, for instance, that pop up, they might give you easy, easy answers that could send you in the wrong direction. That's the wrong information. We have to weigh this out carefully, and we have to weigh it out with the right people who can give us good counsel in those moments. Second thing about doubt, how it can overtake us. So it's the wrong influences and the wrong information it can overtake us. The second thing is uh, that in that case, you're inspired to dig in and look at what causes doubt and how to get out of it. We can go the complete opposite direction and have a complete lack of investigation. We're doubtful, and then we have three cousins that hang out together, apathy, depression, and resignation, that are our friends all of a sudden. That is... We, we get so despondent in our doubt, we, we keep walking down this path and leaning into it so deeply that we're like, I don't even care anymore. I don't even care to investigate. Or we get depressed about it. It's just too much to handle. Thomas is kind of there, I think. This is way too much. This is weighty. And then that can push us down to the, the final step of resignation. It's just the way the world is. Jesus didn't come back. I was wrong. It's just the way the world is. This stinks. The other thing that we can experience in that, how doubt can overtake us, is not necessarily, it's, it's related to those two. But doubt can overtake us even if we investigate, and even if we had our moments of depression or apathy or all those things, but even if we start to investigate, doubt can overtake us when we have the information before us, but we have actually an unyielding heart. 
And so I'm reminded of a story that, that continues to play out in my mind of a young man who came into my office back at the, the last church I was at. Some of you know the story, but it's, it's, it's so compelling to me on a regular occurrence. man comes in. He, he's freshly out of the military uh, within the last year. He, a uh, young man, did one, one round of service in the military, decided that was enough. He had been drinking way too much, and now he stopped drinking, so all of his friends left because he wasn't drinking anymore. So he had no friends, he had lost a job, couldn't hold down a job, and felt like he had no ambition in life. And now, because he had lost all of his jobs and couldn't hold down a job, he was in danger of losing his apartment just up the street from the church. He came walking in and he says, I don't believe in God, I'm bottomed out, I'm not sure why I'm in a, pa- in a church talking to a pastor, but what do I do? And as we sat there and talked through, the, the long and short of it finally was, Okay, when you go home in just a little bit, I want you to pray. Yeah, but I don't believe in God. That's fine. You can still pray. Go home. Put a chair in front of you. Pretend somebody's sitting there. We're going to call that person God. And talk. And pour out your heart. And have a conversation. And then he comes back the next day. And he says, I think I believe. Because I think there was a response. Now, His testimony is not enough for an established and full faith. But it's something. And it's something very important in his story. It's not enough for a full faith. And so what I want to point out is that we need that. We need that that experience of a a robust relationship with God where there is interchange in that way. But that's not really testable between you and me. We need something that, that has a deeper foundation underneath that experience of faith, which matters and is important. And so if we're going to manage what causes doubt and how to deal with doubt, because we'll all have it, what I would suggest to you is this. We need for our faith adequate evidence that what we, we believe is indeed true. And so we talked about that for a long time last week with Easter Sunday, and, and I would actually, if you weren't here, go back and listen online because there's a lot of good information. If you want to know more of how to investigate the historical evidence for the resurrection, talk to me and I'll I'll point you to resources. But sometimes people will claim, and I think it's important to point this out, sometimes people will claim, well, uh, the creation of the world by God and the existence of God, or uh, particularly the resurrection, those are such extraordinary claims, they need extraordinary evidence for me to believe them, which is kind of what Thomas is asking for. He's asking for a bit of, this is an extraordinary thing. I need something extraordinary. But if you need something extraordinary, you're never going to be satisfied. So let's play this out in an example. Let's say that I go back to the 1750s, and I am able to go back and talk to a middle-aged Ben Franklin. And I I can say, Mr. Franklin, uh, over 50 years ago, we sent someone to the moon and they walked on the moon. And he'd be like, that's amazing because we can barely even get you know, down the road in a reasonable amount of time the way we're traveling now. How did you do that? And I say, well, I can show you even evidence of that because he'd probably want to see, like, that seems like a pretty fantastic claim, right? For somebody in 1755, let's say, that we could send someone to the moon. So I could say, well, let me show you on this device a video that I would have had to download before I came because the Wi-Fi is terrible in 1755. So I downloaded the video and some pictures, and I can show him, here's us walking on the moon. Not us, but, you know, who was there. So he can say, oh, wow, there's some evidence. 
And further than that, I can say, but guess what? I'm playing it to you on a device that has more firepower and computing power than the computers that sent them to the moon that I carry in my pocket. And we can show you some great cat videos on this thing. <laughs> this is adequate evidence, isn't it? It's not extraordinary. It seems like an extraordinary claim to someone 200, you go further back, 400, 600, 800 years ago. Okay, how can, how can that even be possible? But all we need is adequate evidence to support the claim, not extraordinary evidence. That's what we need for the resurrection. That's what we need for our faith, too. We need to continue to dig in because the testimony that we might have is important, but the evidence that supports that is actually testable and can help draw someone in to have that testimony of, of life, new life in Christ. John 20, 29, that's where Jesus says, and, and this is a, a, a good point for us who haven't gotten to touch the sides of Jesus, but had the evidence. Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Us, right? At least I hope, us. The second thing I think to help uh, work with the issue of doubt is to know God's intention. So not simply to have adequate evidence, but to know what God wants from us and for us. We talked about whenever angels come on the scene, Jesus comes on the scene. The, the idea of do not be afraid, that message that's delivered over and over and over again. But when Jesus comes on the scene three times in John 20, Jesus gives a familiar but powerful greeting when he comes on the scene and he says, peace be with you. Shalom is what really is behind that. The highest human good you can experience is what I want, not just the absence of conflict. I want God's best for you and the, and the nail-pierced hands come in and say, peace be on you. Now I've made that possible. Isn't that good news? Now because of the work that I've done, Jesus says, now you can experience that highest good that God has for you. That's God's intent. Not the worst for us, but the best for us. From the very beginning, that's what God wanted. And you can see that in the gift that Jesus gives with his peace to the disciples and that is that we need to yield to God's new reality is the third thing for managing doubt. And God gives a way that we can live into it if we'll yield. Jesus ushers in a new reality. That's what he's doing on the cross. Jesus doesn't just demonstrate God's love on the cross, although he does that. It's not just some big object lesson. Jesus loved enough to die, so we should love enough that way. Yes, that's important, but Jesus actually did something on the cross that can fundamentally change our relationship with God and who we are from the inside out. That's what Jesus did on the cross. But we have to yield to God's Spirit in order for that transformation to happen in us. Otherwise, Jesus is just a divine demonstration of love for us to follow, and that's it. And that might be wonderful, but then we die and we're not resurrected in glory. We just die. Jesus delivers the Holy Spirit to his people in 21 and 22. When he comes in, he says, peace be with you. 
As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. That's the word for apostle. You're now apostles. Mary was the first, we should point out. Jesus sent her to preach. Thanks, Mary, for preaching to the disciples who then sat in the room and pondered what she said and had to wait for Jesus. And then Thomas has to wait another week. But Mary preached to them. Mary was the first. Then Jesus says, I'm sending you apostles, and guess what? I'm going to give you the power to do it. Verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. In our scripture reading this morning, we heard when God first animates humans. He breathed his ruach, his spirit, into them. What is this showing us? Sin destroyed that picture. It vandalized God's creation. But what is Jesus doing? He's breathing his spirit in. God's promise was for life. That life was put in jeopardy by sin. And Jesus says, I'm giving you new life. That's the promise, that's the power, that's what he's giving. It doesn't mean we'll never have doubt, but it gives us a solid foundation when we do. It gives us the power to not walk down a dark path when that happens, but to live with God's new life and among God's people. That yielded heart, though, is the way that it comes in. And so I was thinking of my own testimony this week uh, and its experience. Let's just put that. Again, it's, it matters, but it needs the foundation underneath. But, but my experience of faith growing up in this context with many of you and, and being nurtured in the faith by parents who loving me, lovingly demonstrated and showed me and invited Jesus, invited me to Jesus at an early age, and I'm thankful for that. And people who poured into me from an early age, and I'm thankful for that. And people who specifically poured into me in in one-on-one or small group relationships so I'd understand what it means to be a disciple, and I'm thankful for that. But even when we know all the information and even practice all the information to a degree, it wasn't. The yielded heart truly didn't happen until I was in my final years of college, my final weeks of college after studying theology. And I was dried out. And that's when God said, I want you, and I want all of you, and I want all of you now. And the belief question is, will I yield? And I allowed the Spirit to be breathed in. And I yielded. And it's, it's never been the same since. The testimony matters. It's important. It can help us with doubt. But the foundation under it has to come with it. And I'm thankful for the call. And I'm thankful for the, the opportunity to yield to the Spirit. That I could experience that new life. So we asked the question last week, what happens when we encounter the evidence of God's work? We began, we pushed a little further. We said, okay, what happened? What does it mean to believe? And this week we've, we've pushed further because of the story of Thomas to say, and I want to ask this question, what would it take for you to yield your spirit? What would it take for you to yield your doubts and your fears, your hurts, your pains, your disillusion, your grief, your pride, your power, your control, to the one who promises to breathe new life. I want to give two images of the unyielding spirit as we end. One serious and one comically off the charts the other way. 
the, we talked about C.S. Lewis at the beginning, uh, and he talked about the great knock, his tutor. The, the great knock, he describes the great knock, and, and this is such a, a wonderful description and of an unyielding heart at that. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, I've said that he was almost entirely logical, but not quite. He had been a Presbyterian and was now an atheist. He spent Sunday, as he spent most of his time on weekdays, working in his garden. But one curious trait from his Presbyterian youth survived. He always, on Sundays, gardened in a different and slightly more respectable suit. An Ulster Scot may come to disbelieve in God, but not to wear his weekday clothes on the Sabbath. And my experience is that oftentimes people who doubt, it's not that they don't believe that God exists. They're hurt. They're wounded. They're mad. And sometimes they've gone down the wrong path with that information. An unyielding heart, though. Not that he didn't have the information. He's not willing to yield. I would pit that against where oftentimes even those of us who have asked for the Spirit to breathe into us sometimes are with God and and are unyielding in certain areas, we sometimes wrestle with God and in a very poor way, much like in Monty Python and the Holy Grail when you have the two knights fighting and the one knight has lost one arm, it's merely a flesh wound, and another arm, and then both legs, and is still trying to fight Sometimes we operate that way with God. Completely unyielding heart. And to what end? Today, can God breathe his spirit into you? Let's pray together. Lord, please take our hearts. Please take our lives. Please captivate us with your presence. Please make it so that we have the evidence we need and the experience before us to reasonably say that not only do you exist, but your intent is good for us and that you want to breathe your spirit into us to give us new life. And God, help us yield. If we're in the room today and we've never yielded to your spirit, God, may this be the day when we say, okay, I am open now. Lord Jesus, breathe your spirit into me. I yield. And God, for those of us who've been following you for a long time, we've seen the evidence, we've got it accumulated before us, and we just, there are just parts of us, God, that we have just become hard in heart. Will you not only soften us, but break in, And let us experience the new life that your spirit brings so that we would say, yes, Lord, I welcome your spirit into all of me. Yes, Lord. God, may that be us today. May we experience your breath inside and out and be given new life. Lord, we pray this in the name of your son who breathed on us. Amen.